Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have had so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Pau Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio, powered by Malka Sports. Learn more about them at M-A-L-K-A Sports.com. Another tremendous guest on this week's show, Kirk Herbstreet. You've seen him as ESPN's lead college football analyst for years on ESPN. He played college football at Ohio State. He's got a new book out, a memoir, Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. It's in bookstores everywhere and available at Amazon.com. And Kirk is going to join me. And Griggs, the thing I love about this interview, much like many of our interviews on Sports Business Radio, we get to know a different side of the person. And I think people who watch Kirk Herbstreet every week on ESPN are going to get to know a different side of him through this interview this week. Yeah, that's what's cool about having these guys on because, like you said, you get to know them outside of the vocal booth you know, on ESPN where you see him do the same thing every week. You get to dig deeper in behind the scenes, you know, into his parenting life, into how he grew up, into how he played in college. And, uh, you know, he's pretty much the voice of college football nowadays. So this is a this is a fun one. The other thing that we will talk about in addition to fatherhood and his book is the state of college football. Are we headed towards four super conferences, the SEC, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC after the departure or the pending departure of Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC? So, Griggs, you know, we've talked about that a lot on our show, is the changing landscape of college football and college sports. So we'll dig into that with, you know, someone who I would consider to be the foremost expert. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, you've got, it's such a changing landscape. You got NIL, which we've been talking about and we'll talk about more in the future. And you've got, just like you said, the, the super conferences starting to form. College football is changing. I mean, there's more money in it every single year. It's uh, it's changing landscape. So always good to get uh, an expert's advice on it. All right. A random question for you, Griggs. Uh, and if you don't have an answer yet, then save this for next week's show. But uh, who are you liking in college football and who are you liking in the NFL this upcoming season? Ooh, yeah, that is a good question. I haven't thought about it too much yet, but I mean, yeah, Bama's number one early on in the polls, so you got to kind of think they're going to be around. But I'm curious to see what Clemson's going to do. No more Trevor Lawrence. You know, he's carried in the last forever. And it looks like Kelly Bryant's named the starter. They're number two, number three on a couple of the polls. So I'm curious to see if Clemson can uh, bounce back and be the undefeated giant they've been the last couple of years. NFL, I mean, you know, Tampa Bay, Tom Brady, it's hard to go against them. 
But um, I don't know. You still got some some young talent coming in. New quarterbacks, mobile quarterbacks. I think uh, the Cardinals are kind of on the cusp with Kyler Murray. So, you know, NFL is going to be fun, too. It always is. I mean, it's hard to go against Alabama, right? I mean, yeah. every single year. And they're uh, the number one in the poll right now. Um, although 15 of the last 17 champions uh, have been a team in college football who wasn't number one in the poll. So um, that's not a great sign for Alabama that they're number one preseason because the stat shows that you usually don't wind up being number one at the end of the year. But if anyone's going to buck that trend, it's Nick Saban and Alabama. Um, and then, I mean, look, it's hard to pick against Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks. They're returning most of their players. And then Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes, I think they're going to be hungry after losing in the Super Bowl last year. And uh, I expect them to have a good season. So, you know, those aren't going out on a limb picks, but uh, that's who I'm liking so far. And, you know, I guess we'll see as the season goes on. But I'm excited to, uh, you know, watch players like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and some of these rookies and see how they do on the NFL field as opposed to when they were stars in college football. They look pretty good in the preseason. Yeah, you get a lot of fun young quarterbacks coming in, that's for sure. And a lot of mobile quarterbacks, too, which I like, and that really speeds up the NFL game, which is fun, I think, for the viewers. Um, it's going to be fun to see. And, I mean, we didn't have preseason last year with COVID. You realize how awful preseason football is, but we're also excited just to see NFL. But there's some bad games. Yeah, definitely. All right, a reminder, go back into the Sports Business Radio podcast archives. They go back 17 years. But recently, we've had Stephanie McMahon, the WWE chief brand officer on. She was terrific. Bob Costas, Hall of Fame broadcaster. Danica Patrick, uh, Mark Lazary, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. Some really terrific guests lately. If you go back about a year or so, we've got Ken Griffey Jr. and John Smoltz and Candace Parker and some really great interviews over the year. Mark Cuban, Arthur Blank. So go back into the podcast archives. If you're not subscribing to the Sports Business Radio podcast, please do so. We love it when you rate and review our podcast. And coming up next, another terrific guest, Kirk Herbstreet, ESPN's lead college football analyst and author of the new book, Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. We've collaborated with our friends at Parish Project to create high-quality sports business radio clothing, including hoodies, long-sleeve t-shirts, and short-sleeve t-shirts. Each item comes in five different colors and a variety of sizes. These items are super comfortable, and you can wear them on Zoom calls, while working out, or when you're lounging around the house. Sports Business Radio has loyal listeners around the world. We'd love for you to post a picture rocking your Sports Business Radio gear. Tag us on Instagram or Twitter if you post. Get your official Sports Business Radio gear by going online to parishproject.com. That's parishproject.com. P-A-R-I-S-H project.com. My guest is Kirk Herbstreet. He's ESPN's lead college football analyst, former Ohio State football star. Follow him on Twitter at Kirk Herbstreet. He's got a new memoir out. It's called Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. It's out now in bookstores everywhere and available at Amazon.com. Kirk, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? 
I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing great. I really enjoyed your book. Uh, I appreciated the candor. You and I are around the same age, so I could relate to a lot of the things that you referred to uh, in the book, whether it's Sandlot and Wonder Years or just uh, <laughs> growing up in that era. So I, I found that uh, interesting. I'm a parent as well, so uh, the fatherhood part related to me. But you've had this long, accomplished career. Why write the book now? Well, I think you just touched on a few things. You, you, you just mentioned a couple different ways how you personally related to, uh, to some of the stories. And I, um, I was approached by Gene Wojciechowski, who co-authored the book with me and is a colleague on ESPN college game day and he hit me right in the middle of quarantine and and um just a lot of unknowns for all of us going on at that time and he, he kind of came up with the idea of what he envisioned the book to be and i've been approached many times in the past about writing a book but never about a memoir never about opening up and being vulnerable and kind of talking about the dysfunction i grew up with and um and how i coped with that how i kind of compartmentalized it a lot to protect, you know, my feelings. And, um, you know, I hadn't really talked about it. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an introverted guy, so I don't really open up on a regular basis and, um, just decided in the middle of quarantine, why not, you know, let this may be a good time to reflect. And so, yeah, in this book, as you've read, there's, there's plenty of football, there's, there's plenty of, of broadcasting and storytelling. But um, a lot of it is about fatherhood, whether it's my own dad, who was a hero of mine until my parents divorced when I was eight. Uh, he still was. It was just a different different relationship. He was out of my life more than in it. And I, and I never really, I, as you read, I didn't really resent him or, or had anger. I was more, I guess, I just had an emptiness towards that relationship, just wanted more of it. And so um, decided to talk about that and then becoming a dad, you know, myself with four boys and my introduction into that was my, my twins were born 12 weeks early at two pounds each and uh, were clinging to life there for about eight weeks in the NICU and, and got out of that. And they're now 21 years old and, and, and doing well. But just that experience as a first time parent and constantly second guessing myself as a dad. This is not an answer book. You know, this is not uh, here's how you raise kids. It's for, furthest thing from that. It's more of, hey, I'm just trying to do the best I can. And these are some of my own experiences. And, this is what uh, you know. I'm I'm trying to do better at it, and so I don't know. I just thought it would be a good time, as I said, to reflect and, and hear people like you say, "Oh man, I can I can relate to that." And that that more than anything was what I was hoping to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, I find it hugely relatable. Again, as a dad, like you said, there's no roadmap. No one gives us an operating operating manual, and we have kids about here's all the things you need to know when you're a dad. So you <laughs> just kind of feel your way through it, and and. You know, I got to be honest with you, Kirk, I, I love watching you, uh, you know, on ESPN and college football, but I love getting to know you as a person a little bit through your book and as a father. And, you know, I think your fans and people who watch you are going to have a different bond with you going forward because they've read this book and they know your backstory a little bit. Man, that that would be huge. Um, and, and I would love that because um, I, I think when people see folks on TV or they see them in the public eye, they, they kind of build up um, a, a certain thought of who that person is or who they think that person is. And I say, I think in the book, I, you know, just based on feedback I've got from people, I think people look at me 
and the job that I have. And, you know, I look like a guy who was born on third base, you know, right. kind of thing. And nothing against people who are born on third base, but that was the furthest thing <laughs> that I was. And I, and I think, uh, you know, if I, if I uh, have a chance to, to tell the real story of me I, and, and people will look at that and say, wow, I didn't really think that, you know, I mean, I, I think that's great. I, 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 uh, I'd rather have them know the real me than, than not. So uh, if that comes out of this, that'd be great. And I, I tell you, even my, there, there's a book and then there's an audio book, which I read myself. It, it took close to 25 hours to do it. It was wow. really more, more of a performance to do it because you're, you're reading the book and not just kind of reading the way you normally, obviously reading your head. And, and I was reading out loud. And, and, you know, if I was talking about Dabo Sweeney or Lee Corso or, Whoever I would, I would, you know, try to do voices uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, kind of imitating their voices. So I've had family members say and good friends of mine say, man, I've read the book, but I, I did the audio book. And to hear you read your story, um, man, it, it's, it's, it's just so unique to, to have. And I thought, you know, because I debated, do I have an actor or somebody that does this for a living read? the book or do I take on <clears throat> that challenge of doing, like I said, about 25 hours of it? And it was really the hardest thing I did for the book was redoing the audio book and um, the back end of it. I'm just so thrilled that I I did that because of uh, the feedback that I've I've gotten from so many people. Walk me through that process, because I've heard more and more authors doing, you know, the audio portion of the book themselves. Is that like four or five sessions over the 25 hours? Break that down. Yeah. Yeah. It was about five sessions. Uh, and then I did a, a few, uh, another day of kind of edits that, um, the gentleman who was helping me out, he, so I would, I would go to a studio and <clears throat> in, in today's day and age, of course, everything's on zoom. It seems like, and there was a guy in Boulder, Colorado, who's really a, a really good guy. And he was, he was kind of coaching me through it. Cause I've never done anything like this. Obviously it's my first book. And, and, um, he just kind of sat there on zoom with headphones on and I had headphones on and we would, I mean, go through the very beginning to, to the, the end, to the acknowledgements. And if I, you know, messed up or I, you know, didn't, didn't say a word right, or he would catch something, you know, he'd say, Hey, we need to go back, you know, uh, to that uh, two paragraphs back at, at this spot and we got to start again. And, and so, you know, I would, we just went through the whole book like that. And, and like I said, we tried to did a probably did about five hours a day and um, just did the best that I could. And, and, and I think the reason it was the, the guy said when we were done, Hey, you know, I do this with a lot of people and this was really, really, uh, you really did a good job with it. And I said, well, I think it's, I couldn't do this for a living, but it was reading my story. It was easy to be in the right tone, whether it was, you know, a tough, sad tone or, or, jovial, upbeat, happy tone, because, you know, you're just kind of reacting to the words that, that you're reading. But uh, it was it was a really cool experience. It was, like I said, it was more of a performance than anything. I mean, you get done with five hours on a Monday Whew. and you're like, oh, you're spent. Oh, wow. Yeah, man, I need to go lay down for a little bit. <laughs> and then, you know, we, then we knocked out the next four days. But yeah, it was challenge. But uh, the back end, the, the finished product made it all worth it. So between that gentleman that helped you out and Gene, you've got two people you're pretty comfortable with in this process. That's got to help. Absolutely. I, I, I could not have done this without Gene and the comfort that I had with him. And I talk in the book about when I was at Ohio State, 
seeing a sports psychologist because I went in as a highly touted recruit and fell flat on my face for three years and, and really, really struggled with depression and sadness and becoming a cynic and, and just, just a cancer, you know, to the team and, and, um, sort of dark place. And I, I was ready to quit, ready to give up. My dad, who was still, you know, in my life offered some encouragement, which helped, but boy, I'll tell you, seeing this sports psychologist, but by the way, in 1990 and 1991, not a really cool thing, uh, for your street cred to be going to see a sports psychologist. So right. Would, and, and pretty uncommon, I would, go, I would imagine. Yeah, very uncommon. And, and every time I would go see him and I would see him weekly, I, I promise you, I would look over my shoulder to see if anybody was looking to see me go into into his office. And my position coach heard about, eventually heard about that I was seeing him. And he looked at me like I had three heads, like, what is your deal? What is your problem kind of thing? And um, if I wouldn't have had him in my life to, to really open up and, and talk to, I don't know if I would have ended up making it where I have. So he was a game changer. And I really encourage people. What's neat about that for me was, you know, you could talk to somebody in your family or a close friend and talk to them about your problems. But even though they don't realize it, they, they subconsciously have an agenda or kind of hope you go a certain way with whatever you're struggling with. So even their advice sometimes is, is, is slanted a, cer a certain way. You go talk to a person that's just listening and, and has an objective view and maybe is just looking out for how you might grow and what, what's in your best interest. Um, it's very powerful. And so I, uh, I really enjoyed that relationship and Gene kind of reminded me a little bit about that. Cause I put a lot of these, these feelings away for many, many, many years. And he started to bring up some things when I was a kid. And if I didn't have that relationship and that trust with Gene, I, I don't think I could have opened up and, and talked about a lot of that stuff. So yeah, he, he was a, a great partner throughout this process. So you mentioned in your book, again, the relationship with your dad, the divorce of your parents, um, and now you've got four sons, and one of them just started at Ohio State. So you've got three generations of Herb Street who have played at Ohio State now. How did your relationship with your dad and your mom impact how you parent today? In a, in a big way. I mean, my mom, you know, the book is about fathers and sons, but my mom, I mean, she's always been there for me um, and, and has been through a lot herself uh, throughout this, this journey that I've been on. Uh, and and uh, I think more than anything, she's been a sounding board for me when, I, when I've been parenting. And I, not having a dad, I don't know your background or people that are listening, their background, but, you know, being eight years old and your dad leaves the house. And again, my dad was a great man. It wasn't like he was a alcoholic or a, you know, an abusive guy or anything. It was, it wasn't anything like that at all. He was great. He just, his problem was he and my mom decided to, to separate and then he didn't like confrontation. So he avoided confrontation instead of addressing it. And so I was with my mom, my mom was confrontation. So he just kind of avoided it. Then he got remarried and he just kind of drifted in and out of my life. So I not having a dad and a good influence in your house for me, when I became a dad, I, I really questioned a lot of my, my parenting. And I, I was, I was a, just to put it in perspective, as busy as I am with football and work and college game day and the game, I, games I call, I mean, like you and everybody else, I'm busy, but man, I've made my kids my priority. 
and I still do. Like I, I wasn't a dad where, you know, the mom has to remind the dad, Hey, don't forget uh, there's a game on Wednesday or Hey, uh, Jake has a test on Thursday in algebra. Like I knew everything. Like I was a hands-on live it every day, take the kids to school, talk to the kids every day kind of dad. And so I, I thought I was doing a good job, but you know, parenting's hard. I mean, it's the hardest job to me that you can have. It's the most important job and the toughest because you want to do such a good job. And so when I would, when I would get into these gray areas of, you know, the teenage years, especially, am I, am I doing the right thing? Or I, I, did, I just didn't have an example. So I, I would even talk to my kids about it openly about, you know, man, I'm trying to do the best I can. Am I doing okay for you and as your dad? And, and so I, I just felt like I didn't want to be their best friend. You know, at, at, at this age, my kids now are 21. So it's a little bit different. My twins, my, you mentioned Zach, who's at Ohio state. He just left home. He's 18. And then I have a 15 year old and I don't, I want to be fun and I want to be their dad, but I also want to teach them things. And, and sometimes teaching teenage uh, boys things isn't always, you, you know, you're being their best friend. It's, it's doing things they don't always like. And when I would have to do things they didn't always agree with, that's when I would be like, am I doing, am I doing this right? You know? And so, yeah, I've, I think it's impacted me in a big way, both for the positive because I had loving parents, even though the dysfunction was there, but also didn't have the ideal, you know, I didn't have Mr. or Mrs. Cunningham, uh, you know, Richie Cunningham type of life. I just didn't have it. So I, I did, I, I learned from my friend's dads. I learned from like could, and I'm still trying to do uh, the best that I, that I can. And today growing up is so different than when we were growing up. You kind of touched on it in the book. You said you lived in a neighborhood that kind of reminded people of the Sandlot or the Wonder Years. You're out playing ball in the street and things like that. Now with social media, obviously we've had this pandemic over the last year. I have a 16 and a half year old daughter. She was playing sports, obviously can't play sports. You don't see your coaches. You don't see your teachers. You don't see your friends. It's so different now for our kids than it was for us. So it's like a different landscape that we probably didn't anticipate when we became parents. Man, that is a great point and and very fair. Um, my my mom and dad, you know, before they divorced, I I think about it. I was in the backyard. I mean, we had fifteen kids in the backyard that ages, you know, if I were five or six, went all the way up to probably. 10 or 11 and you know whether it was wiffle ball four square get the big wheels out i mean it was going to the to the creek we're catching snakes we're catching crawdads <laughs> i mean it was just non-stop yeah. you know and like you'd eat lunch at someone's house you know just it'd be right around lunch and one of the moms would yell come on in and there'd be peanut butter sandwiches you'd go in and eat peanut butter sandwiches and and a fruit you know a juice box or something and you'd go back out and and play until it was dark. I mean, that, that was your summer. Um, and now, like you said, everything's a play date. Everything's organized. Um, it, it, your, your kids, if they, if they participate in activities, whether it's sports or the arts or whatever it is, they have a, a coach that helps them. And there's very little, unless you're in a rural community, it's hard to find those kind of communities where just we don't have to schedule a play date. It's just your outside planet. Right. And yeah. And yeah, so I think our generation of parents, my con- biggest concern with our generation of parents is I, I often I, I look at that and I heard somebody give a speech about this. We're kind of the snowplow 
generation of parents. Meaning, we don't want anything bad to happen to our kids. And so we snow, we, we clear out all the problems in front of them and they mm. kind of walk in behind us. If it's a bad teacher, we'll take them out of that class, move them over to this teacher. If it's a bad coach, take them off that team, move them over to another team. You know, if it's any kind of situation where our kids are not going to have success and ha- might have to deal with failure, we're going to take them out of that and, and we're going to get them to another situation. And, and I, I didn't, I don't know about you, but the, you know, I didn't experience that. I mean, we kids dealt with failure and, and we, we, you know, dealt with it and, and learned and grew and, and hopefully for the better. Um, and, and I really worry sometimes for this next generation of kids because they're, they're not always getting a chance to fail and they're, they're not always getting a chance to have to learn and adapt and, and overcome. And those are such valuable lessons that we all need in life. And, um, and so, and I, by the way, I, I had that same feeling of keeping up with the Joneses mentality of, of feeling other parents doing that. So this is what you must, this is what I'm supposed to do. Maybe, maybe, uh, I I'm doing it wrong because I'm watching everybody else, you know, and everybody else, everything's wonderful. Everything's great, you know? And, and, uh, I think it's, you're right. It's man, what a different time, uh, in our country right now. And then you throw in the, the global pandemic, like you said, that, that's, whole different level you throw in social media and how kids communicate today my kids a lot of times they play video games with headsets on they're playing Fortnite or they're playing madden or mlb the show and i used to sit in the same room with my buddies and hang out and you know they're, they're socializing they're hanging out but with headphones on you know playing games and, and uh on these social media apps it's just very very different. Hard for, I think, our group to relate to sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I want to go back to something you just said, because it's also one of the themes of your book, resilience. So for all the reasons you just laid out, the snowplow parents that exist today, I worry that our kids aren't learning resilience and learning how to bounce back from failure. And like you mentioned in your book and earlier in this conversation, first three years at Ohio State didn't go as planned for you. And you had to be resilient in order to stay on the team and, you know, have success in the end. Resilience now, whether it's, hey, I'm going for that job and I know I have to start at the bottom, like you did making what, $12,000 a year in your first broadcasting job. Or, you know, some people come in today and they're like, if I can't be, you know, mid-level or or running the show, then, you know, I'm not going to do it. And you're like, no, there's a process to this. Absolutely. And it's a big part of the book. And I, I heard a pastor one time saying, you're either going into a storm, some kind of storm in life. You're in a storm currently, or you're coming out of a storm. And that's life, right? For all of us, whether it's parenting, parenting, or it's being an employee and trying to do the best job you can, whether it's owning a business, no matter what you're doing in life, think about your life over the last seven days. And tell me that you haven't either just come through a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're headed into one. I mean, it's, it's, and so if that's reality, if that's what all of our lives are like as adults, we're really doing our kids an injustice by not allowing them to learn to deal with those storms. We're taking those storms out of their lives instead of making them try to, to deal with them. And, and I'm not saying, we shouldn't be there to hold their hand and, and, you know, let them understand, Hey, I'm right here. I, I, you know, I'm going to try to help, 
guide you here a little bit, give you some suggestions. I, I got your back. I love you. And I support you. But not, oh, boy, storm? No, no, no. Come over here. We'll get you out of that. We'll get you over here where there's blue skies. Don't worry about it. Man, you're setting them up for failure down the road in my mind. I'm no different. Like I said, I, I've, I've, I've felt those same kind of pressures. And to see my kids struggle, oh, my gosh. It's hard. And to just, walk, just to watch, oh, how hard is that? And I, I get wanting to take them out of it. But um, I just really feel, I mean, my kids have struggled a lot. You know, having uh, twins that were 12 weeks early, they're two pounds, and they're probably in the 5 to 10 percentile height weight range most of their lives. And kids are go through teenage years and, and go through puberty when they're 12 and 13. And my kids probably didn't experience puberty until they're 15. And then to try to compete with, with kids like that, oh, it was a nightmare to, to watch them try to deal with that. God bless them. They, they just kept chopping wood and, and kept battling. And, and I'm very, very, very proud of them for that. I never wanted to make them ever feel like they had a handicap in some way or that they were not, quote unquote, normal. So I just try to always treat them that way. But yeah, watching them struggle was one of the hardest things I've ever done, whether it was academics or it's athletics or social. You know, in, in today's day and age, these kids, these poor kids with these apps, a group of five or six or eight kids get invited to go to someone's house and your kid didn't get invited. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen parents fix that. You know, they'll they'll call the parents that where all the kids are. Hey, hey, uh, my, my kid love to come over. Is it OK if he comes over? It's like. Wow, what what incredible pressure that these kids face and the parents uh, face to try to fix that. So yeah, resiliency, getting knocked down, getting back up, learning, adjusting, fine tuning. Gosh, that's so much a part of life. And and I uh, I'm very grateful. It was not fun to go through what I went through, but man, on the back end. Um, and I'm still going through stuff, you know, and still trying to fine tune. I probably will do that till the day I die, but it's so rewarding when you, when you get back up and, and you learn from some failures and, and learn from hard times. It's, it's very important to be able to learn how to do that. Cause like I said, you're going to do that a lot in life when you get older. I believe life is full of sliding doors, moments. You take advantage of some, you don't of others in your book. You mentioned the story of how you met your now wife. And you were an introverted student and you almost didn't go to the bar that night. You usually had a wingman with you, as you said, and, and you went by <laughs> yourself and think about it, Kirk. Like, what if you didn't go that night? Maybe you still meet her, but you went, you were brave. You went by yourself. You struck up a, a conversation with her and, and the rest is history. So that to me was a charming story in the book, too. Man, I yeah, being a shy guy and I had a girlfriend throughout high school and college for about eight years. And so I didn't really ever, I was never a guy that was comfortable ever, ever, ever going up to a girl and, and saying, Hey, how are you? I don't even know what you say. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I don't know, whatever, whatever you say, I don't know. And so I, I would always just kind of just hope that, uh, you know, my, the girlfriend that I had throughout eight years, we would eventually get married, but we ended up breaking up going into my, my senior year. I redshirted. So I was in school my fifth year. She graduated, you know, from uh, Ohio State in, her, in the fourth year, moved to Chicago. And I just broke up and thought, I just don't want to deal with, you know, girlfriend or drama. My senior year, I've worked so hard to get to this point. I'm a captain of the team. I'm locked in. 
and let's roll. And second game of the season that year, we were playing a game that we were a heavy underdog on the road at uh, Syracuse. And during a TV timeout, we were playing pretty well and actually competing. And we would go on to, to win the game. But during this TV timeout, I came over the sideline and I was looking, listening to the quarterback. And I'm listening to the offensive coordinator. He's got his head, 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 headphones on and head coach John Cooper was there. We're all talking about what, you know, play in this next drive that's coming up. And as in the middle of them talking to me, I just happened to catch the be right behind my offensive coordinator's head. I, I saw a cheerleader and it's not like I'm always looking in the background for cheerleaders. I just happened to see this cheerleader who was in the background of the coach and she looked very pretty. And it was just like a mental note. And uh, we went on, played the game, finished the game. And the third string quarterback, uh, Brian Niemeyer, he was dating a cheerleader who would eventually become his wife. But at that time they were dating. And I said, Hey man, can you ask um, your girlfriend who that, that uh, cheerleader was that, that I saw. And so now that was, think about this September. She didn't call me. This is how long, cause I didn't, I'm not going to make a move. I didn't do anything. <laughs> she, she called me in late March during March Madness, the reason I remember I was watching Kentucky play Michigan in the final four and she called me, I could hear background noise. This is no cell phones. It's called my apartment and I could just hear tons of noise. And first time I answered, I said, hello, hello. And, and the, the phone hung up. And then like five minutes later called again. And she said, is this Kirk? And I said, yeah. And she said, Hey, it's Allison. Me and Brian and Tanya are over at, you know, wherever they were do you mind coming over and joining us? And I was like, uh, <laughs> I'm looking around my apartment. Where's my roommates? Yeah. There's no one there. And so I, I said, yeah, sure. And then I just sat there for 10 minutes. Like, what am I going to do? I, I've never been anywhere in my life by myself. Um, and so I just sucked it up, like you said, and drove there and walked into a bar first time and only time in my life by myself just to go meet her. And, uh, and did it. And like you said, the, the rest is history. Might be the best decision you ever made. <laughs> no doubt. Before I let you no go, because um, I know we only have a few minutes left, I've got to ask you about college football and where it's at. You know, we've seen Oklahoma and Texas look like they're heading to the SEC. Uh, there's a story out recently that the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC may form some sort of an alliance Kirk, where is this all going? Because for years on this show, we've talked about eventually there will be super conferences and the haves and the have nots. And it looks like we're headed in that direction. But where do you see this going? Yeah, and I, I guess we all have been speculating about that. You know, when we, we saw the realignment stories years ago. I don't know. It feels like I'm with you. It feels like we're heading to maybe these four super conferences. Um, I just don't know what what's going to happen to the remaining teams in the big 12? I mean, are they going to eventually have to join the pac 12 or, or the, or the big 10 or the sec? Are they, are they going to add a few teams? Are they going to try to add, you know, like a, I don't know, like a Houston or a BYU. I, I have no idea. You know, a lot of things are happening behind closed doors. We're all speculating. My biggest concern to be honest with you is I feel there's animosity right now between Greg Sankey of the sec and all the other commissioners. Hmm. You hear about this alliance with the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12, and and to me, if we're ever going to be able to move to get move down the road in college football, we've got to be able to move together. 
Greg Sankey is worried, and he should be, about his own constituents in his backyard, his ADs, his presidents, his players, his coaches, his fans. And they're all excited about what Greg Sankey's doing. Kevin Warren's in the Big Ten. He's worried about his constituents. Same thing with the Big 12 and the Pac-12 and the ACC. Where's that one voice like a Roger Goodell, whether you like him or you don't, where's the one voice that's worried about the sport collectively? That's, that's where we need to get. And right now we don't. We're very fragmented. Everybody's looking out for their own interests. And I don't know where this thing ends up. I don't know if they're going to pull away from the NCAA, create their own governing body, their own set of rules or whatever they're going to do, or if they're going to stay in the NCAA. I, I have no idea. But where, whatever happens, my hope is that in three years or five years that we get to a point where we have a better postseason to get more teams involved because right now Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama are there every year. That's three of the four teams. we got to improve that. And we need one voice that is not worried about his own backyard. He's worried about the entire country and trying to do things right for the sport as a group. And, and right now we, we don't have that. So that, that's what I'm hoping we'll eventually get to. How we get there, I, I have no earthly idea. It's going to be interesting to watch. Last question. Uh, ESPN's college game day kicks off on Saturday, August 28th. I always marvel at like your schedule because you, you know, you're starting the day somewhere and then you don't always call the game in the location where you are. Are you like getting on the PJ and going to the game that you're calling or, you know, your day seems like it's crazy on Saturdays. So real quick, cause I know we're tight on time. Yeah. 15 weeks. Let's say it's 15 weeks in a season. I would say, Seven or eight of the times I'm, I'm going to the game that I'm calling. So game day in the morning and stay in that same location. We have a, a beautiful all-state bus in the back and the parks right by the stadium. And we have five TVs in the, in the back of that bus. And we just sit there like fans do and, and watch football all day, you know, and, and, uh, and yell at each other and have fun. I would say, you know, the other seven or eight, I'm on the road, you know, and I, I do game day in the morning, let's say in Tallahassee. You know, we're down in Florida State, and the game I'm calling could be in Austin, Texas. It could be in Eugene, wherever the ABC game of the week is. I fly, and Disney has a plane that they'll pick us up wherever game day is, and then they'll fly us to uh, to wherever the, the game that I'm calling uh, happens to be. So by the time the show ends at noon Eastern, and we get down into a car, police escort to an FBO, and we're in the air. I would say by 1245, I'm in the air flying to my next location. Usually we land and we have a car that takes us sometimes straight to the stadium, depending on how far you go, sometimes to a hotel for a quick shower, change of clothes, and then head over to the stadium. But uh, it's, it's a full, uh, full weekend without a doubt. But uh, man, it's something as you, if you read the book, you know, I, it's something I love to do. It's my passion. Uh, I kind of stumbled into this job. I'm, I'm a bit of an anomaly. Usually you have to win a Heisman Trophy to get in my seat or, you know, a national championship or be some kind of huge name on the playing field. I was not that. And and I just tried to outwork everybody and grind and do the best I could, you know, all the way back in 1996 and had a lot of success and very fortunate. But I, I kind of like Tom Brady looks in the mirror and still sees a sixth round draft pick. <laughs> I'm not Tom Brady by any stretch of imagination, but I still see a guy trying to prove himself. And that, I just use that as my motivation to, uh, to do the best job that I can every year. 
Kirk Herbstreet, watch him on ESPN College Game Day. Get his book. It is a fantastic read or listen. It's out of the pocket. Football, fatherhood, and college game day Saturdays. It's at bookstores everywhere and Amazon.com. Kirk, I really enjoyed this conversation. Keep up the great work. I think your book is is fantastic. Uh, it's very relatable, and, and thanks for writing it. Well, I've done a bunch of these to, to talk about the book and promote college football in the book, but uh, you did an incredible job. This is one of my favorites that I've done, and I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much, Kirk. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.